If you have your Bible this morning, I would love for you to turn to Acts chapter 5 as we continue this series that we began several weeks ago called The Church Has Left the Building. Looking at this uh, book of Acts, the early church in this uh, the, in this chapter, in this, in this book of uh, Acts, that as they're going through and, and learning what it means to live out as the church their faith, after Jesus has ascended into heaven and given them this mission uh, that they are continuing to carry out, and still in many ways we continue to carry out today. Now, as we get started, I have to say this is a very uh, special day in our family. My youngest son, Brandigan, turns two today, and so uh, it's a, just a, um, a, a great day for us, but also just as I reflected on that, uh, how hard uh, is so hard realizing uh, that hard to believe that uh, he'd be two already. I mean, it seems like just the other day that he uh, was born, but also I reflected on it, realizing that uh, the older my children get, uh, the more I turn into my own dad. Um, you know, and I see this in all kinds of ways, and specifically this week, I have no idea how it happened, but all of a sudden, I found myself on YouTube watching a guy mowing his lawn, and I thought, you know, okay, how did I get to this corner of the internet where uh, not only is this guy setting up his camera to record himself mowing his lawn, but here I am finding myself entertained by it, you know, that's like peak dad level right there when you're watching videos of some other guy mowing his grass. But uh, in all these things, I, I see myself and find myself being like my dad and, and even saying things uh, like my dad. You know, it's funny how often we find ourselves against our best efforts turning into our parents. You know, I say things like turn off the lights or close the door, the air is on, or you know, what takes you so long in the shower, you don't have that much to wash. You know, all these things I heard growing up. And as I reflected on that this week, I, I think this morning, uh, as we continue looking at the book of Acts, I think we would, if we were in the apostles' uh, sandals at this point, find themselves hearing the words of Jesus almost like a father to his children. Words like Jesus said in the Gospels, warning them, he said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will put you out of the synagogue, and the, in fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. As we come to Acts chapter 5 this morning, we see once again Jesus' followers brought before the Sanhedrin, brought before the, the Jewish high court. This is not the first time they've been in this situation. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, which we didn't cover in our sermon series, but looking at this Acts, this book, we see uh, then brought before uh, the council then, Peter and John, after healing where we saw last week, healing this man who had been unable to walk since birth. And it's in this moment that they are warned very specifically, very, very directly, to no longer speak about Jesus. Yet, they're not quite sure what to do in light of this powerful and growing church. And so they're hoping that their warning will be enough, that they'll put them out and, and expect Peter and John to comply with these orders. But here again in chapter 5, we see that these apostles have been healing and, and performing miracles and preaching about Jesus despite this warning not to do so. And it's this warning that, to stop preaching Jesus that I really want to focus in and, and hone in on this morning. Asking the question, what do we do when we encounter opposition for the testimony that we have about Jesus? What do we do when people refuse to hear our message or reject our message or even threaten us because of our message? Will we stand firm in, in our conviction and in our courage or will we cave and compromise? 
This morning we see the apostles stand before the Sanhedrin boldly, staunchly refusing to change their testimony for Jesus. And so I think that we can learn from them, that we can borrow from their example to see what about our witness must remain the same regardless of the pressures that we face. And the first thing that we see this morning in their example is that in testifying for Jesus, even in the face of, of hardship and pressure, that our resolve remains the same. Verse 17 says, Then the high priest and his associates, who are members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. The apostles have been brought before this, this high council and unable and unsure what to do with them. They, they throw them in prison, and Luke makes specific note of their jealousy. And I love this word jealous because it's a, a Greek word that literally means to boil. That there is this, this rage that has been bubbling up in these religious leaders. And this would make sense following their confrontation that we see between Peter and John and the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. Verse 18 of chapter 4, it says, And they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And after further threats, they let them go. Here they are angry at their refusal. They've just got done telling Peter and John to no longer preach about Jesus, no longer talk about Jesus, no longer testify to what they've seen and heard. And immediately, Peter and John go right back to doing what they've been doing. It's almost like that parenting moment. Don't you hate it when your kids call your bluff? You know, like, don't do that. You're going to have a consequence. And then they do it, and then you have to think of a consequence. And it just highlights the fact that really we don't know all that much what we're doing as parents sometimes. It's like that cat who, like, stares you dead in the eyes and knocks that glass off the table. Like, you know, it's just this refusal to do what they've been told to do. I mean, they've already told the apostles to stop because they didn't know how to stop them. And still they're not sure what to do, so they lock them up for the night and think, well, we'll just deal with them in the morning. And it's at that point that I just have to smile at what God does here. Verse 19 says, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. I love that the Sanhedrin locks them up for their miraculous ministry, but in doing so, they just provided another opportunity for a miracle to happen. They, they try to stop these miracles, but in doing so, they just multiply them. But I also have to imagine that what is a, a moment of great victory for the apostles and their freedom is also a great test of their resolve. Because in this, in this moment, they're faced with a choice. They can either obey God or they can obey these men. These two commands that they've been given are in direct opposition to each other. They've been told by the Sanhedrin, stop talking about Jesus. And then meanwhile, this angel, this messenger from God, tells them to go and stand and speak about this new life. But despite this choice before them, it's really no choice at all. The resolve of the apostles never wavers. They go right back to the scene of the crime, and they continue to preach. Verse 21 says, At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. I look at this and I think, what could make 
you know, 12 men miraculously freed from jail in the middle of the night as an act of God go right back to preaching and doing what they were arrested, to, by, arrested doing uh, that got them arrested in the first place. You know, if in this situation, if we were freed, we might think, that, okay, second chance to get out of here and, 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 and disperse, you know, spread away from the persecution. But I think they understood they had been delivered, they had been freed, they had been saved for a purpose. And likewise, we have been delivered and freed and saved for a purpose. I think sometimes it's easy as Christians, this temptation to think, you know, is this kind of I've got mine mentality? You know, I've got my heaven ticket punched and so I just need to, to sit here and, and mind my manners until Jesus gets back or he, or he calls me home, you know, just do my thing and, and, and just keep that to myself. But the apostles understood that they had been freed spiritually in their salvation and, and physically from their confines of this prison cell to do something with that, to do something with that freedom. And the, the price that was paid for their freedom by the blood of Jesus was too high of a cost to do nothing. They'd received their marching orders from Jesus and again from this angel to go and stand and tell other people about Jesus, to act on what they've been given. Verse 25 says, Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. There's this resolve about them. That regardless of what they are told, regardless of what threats they face, that they will continue to do what they have been called to do. Some of you have probably heard of this uh, monument in Washington, D.C. called the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And, and what this tomb is, it has no name on it, obviously, by its moniker, Unnamed Soldier. But what it is, is a monument to all those who have fallen in battle but have not been identified. And the really unique thing about this monument, about this tomb, is that it is guarded by a military sentinel 24-7-365. At every second of every day since 1937, a guard has stood in front of this tomb. And imagine the amount of resolve to guard this tomb in the face of rain and snow and sleet and hail and wind and sun. They have stood out in the midst of hurricanes and blizzards, never wavering to guard this tomb, to never back down. And that's the image that comes to mind when I think of the apostles in this moment. This intense resolve to never give up, to never back down from the calling that they have received. He says, we must obey God rather than men. And I love that word must because what it is, it speaks of uh, it is necessary. For them, it is a moral necessity. It is, it is unquestionable to consider doing otherwise. And when we face pressures in our faith to back down from what we know to be true, where we face pressures to compromise on what God has spoken in his word and what he has called us to do in our mission, our resolve must stay strong to stand for him and in him. And the thing that helps us to stay strong, that the reason our resolve can remain the same is because the second thing we see from their example, that the message remains the same. The message remains the same. 
Now, I'm not talking about the ways that we reach new generations or audiences or people, groups with the message. The, the context of the gospel is always changing. The way we present it is always changing, but the content never does. Part of our job as mission-directed apostles of Christ is to find new and creative ways of presenting our gospel message, but while the packaging may change, the message doesn't. Think of it sometimes like a box of Wheaties. You know, the picture is always changing, but the cereal always remains the same. The message never changes. And I admire the courage of the apostles in this moment. That here they stand before these men who tried Jesus, put him to death. And they've already been arrested for preaching that same message. They've been told to, to cut it out and stop doing it. Yet they continue to preach the very same message that led them to crucify Jesus. The very same message that got them arrested in the first place. So verse 30 says, The God of our ancestors, Peter speaking, The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. How easy it would have been for Peter in this moment to water down his message to back down from the claims that he had preached over and over, the claims of Jesus' lordship, of his resurrection, of, of their guilt, of our guilt, in sending Jesus to the cross. How easy it is for us to face this temptation to change the message even when faced with less severe consequences. Because what would you be tempted to do in this situation? You'd be tempted to say, well, you know, you misunderstood, you got it all wrong. Let, let, me, let me explain, you know... But the focus of the apostles' message, their concern was not to defend themselves, but to bring the focus back to Jesus. They said, you killed Jesus, but God raised him. You shamed him, but God exalted him. You rejected him, but God has vindicated him. You might see what's going on, but we witness what is going on. We testify to who he was. The message never changes. And I think the temptation that we face today, especially with people resistant to our message, is to, to water it down, to make it more palatable. You know, we don't like to use words like obedience and sin and holiness. You know, love and grace and mercy, those can stay. Those are, those are good. Those are acceptable. When it comes to the message telling people that your sin put Jesus on the cross, that your guilt is as much guilt as the, these religious leaders and putting Jesus on the cross, and that without him, there's, there's no eternal life. Those kinds of things, we, we tend to want to water that down, to shy away from that. But often, if we do so, by the time of our mission-flavored sales pitch is over, there's no challenge, there's no conviction, there's no life change, only this cheap grace or transformationless pseudo-spirituality. The message never changes. And if we change our message about Christ, then we miss out on his promises for us. Yes, the guilt of our sin put him on the cross, but the salvation that comes from that is the great promise that is available to us when we hold firm to this message. That in the same way that we are called to die and God will raise us, that we were shamed but God will exalt us, that we might be rejected but we will be vindicated. And in face of this opposition, our resolve must remain the same and our message remain the same. And by doing that, we see that there's one thing that can't remain the same, and that's us. That we cannot remain the same when confronted, confronted with the truth of the gospel. 
what will your response to the gospel be? What we see perhaps most plainly this morning is that to be a genuine follower of Jesus requires radical change. It requires a dramatic shift, a redesign of our priorities. Everybody has a choice. Everybody has a response, a decision about what to do with Jesus. And not making a decision is making a decision. Imagine a man gets down on one knee to propose to his girlfriend and he pops the question, he pulls out the ring, he opens the box and she just walks away. She doesn't have to give a word to make sure or make clear her answer to his proposal. To not make a decision, to refuse to make a decision is making a decision. And that's what we see at the end of this chapter is that we have two options when it comes to regarding and responding to Jesus. That we can either reject him or we can rejoice in him. Verse 33, when the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and wanted to put the apostles to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. I love this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news, the gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah. I love that, again, they're told not to speak about Jesus. They're beaten with rods. They are sent out with this direct command, and they go immediately back to proclaiming Jesus again. That resolve is still there. That message is still there. But then I look at this guy, Gamaliel, and in him we see this guy that has everything going for him. Gamaliel was a Pharisee, and not just a Pharisee, but like the Pharisee. He was one of the seven teachers, the greatest teachers in all of Judaism. He was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. He was the grandson of one of the most famous rabbis in all of Jewish history. In fact, he was so well respected that when he died, the Jews were recorded as saying, when Rabbi Gamaliel the elder died... The glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. When he died, it was like the law has taken a hit today. But despite all of this knowledge and all of this prestige and all of this good standing, he misses out on who Jesus is and what he has to offer. He says, we've seen revolutionaries like this before. They, they come and go, they pop up and die out. And remember what happened to them, to, the, to their followers. And if this Jesus movement isn't backed by God, and it will fail. And if it is, then we can do nothing about it. And all of that looks and, and sounds like super solid, wise advice, wise counsel. But really what it is, is just a persuasive argument to do nothing. To inaction. You see, despite everything he has seen, despite the power of the Holy Spirit and the apostles, the healings, the miracles, evidence that cannot be denied still, he refuses to admit who Jesus really is. 
He's just another political revolutionary taken care of by Rome. You see, genuine faith in making a decision about Jesus isn't a wait-and-see decision. Genuine faith doesn't call us to wait and see. Genuine faith doesn't pass the buck to God and say, okay, big guy, you know, if you're real, you got to show me, you gotta, you got to prove it to me. Sometimes faith means obeying before understanding. Sometimes faith means taking a step when you can't see the entirety of the journey. And the response of this Head honcho Pharisee isn't a response, though, that's limited to the first century. It's a, still a response that we see in so many in the world around us. That every single day, people are content in their positions of power and prestige to decide to choose inaction rather than to respond to the way that God has called and constantly at work in them and around the world. But also in these three verses, what we see are some incredibly challenging and even confusing words, depending on where you stand in Jesus. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. You see, in one sentence, we see this choice to stand in Christ regardless of the outcome. The decision was made, the the apostles refused to remain the same because they chose to remain in him. And that sounds confusing. It sounds counterintuitive to rejoice in suffering and to to rejoice in disgrace, but this challenge to do so came from Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus says, blessed, literally the word is happy. Happy are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This word that Jesus uses, blessed or or happy, it almost carries a sense of, of congratulations. Congratulations to you when you are persecuted, when you face hardship, when you face disgrace because of me. You see, Jesus says when we are persecuted and our resolve remains the same. And our message remains the same. And in light of that, we refuse to stay the same, that we are blessed. That we should be congratulated for standing for the kingdom. And here the disciples stand and and they leave beaten with rods and shamed. And yet they go right back and they rejoice and they celebrate. Because in doing so, they have been identified with Jesus. And I can think of no greater decision for us that to make the choice to be identified with Jesus, with what he has done as his church, as we leave this place, as we go into the world, what greater way to be identified than as ambassadors of the King of Heaven. And so this morning, as we look and we see these pressures, these oppositions, maybe we don't face those in the same way. Maybe not now, maybe not yet. But regardless of the situation, we all face these opportunities to back down. We face with the pressures of this world to back down from our resolve, to back down from our message, to back down from the decisions that we have made. But what we see in this account is the power of the Spirit at work in these apostles, at work in the church, at work in us to remain strong in the face of pressure. So this morning, I want to encourage you in a decision that you might have to make. Maybe for some of you, it's a decision to follow Jesus for the very first time, to take that step, to bow that knee to the King of Heaven. Maybe for you, it's just taking one more step. A year in a a 
pressure, a place in life, uh, facing a, a pressure, a difficulty, where you don't know if you can continue to go on for whatever reason, but to take that next step. A decision to continue passionately pursuing Jesus because he passionately pursued you. Maybe for you, it's a decision to renew the fire that was once within you. Maybe you remember the day when, like these apostles, that you would do anything to be identified with Jesus, but lately things have been piling up and piling on, and life has gotten in the way, and things have gotten hard, and that flame has been quenched. But we have a mission to do. We have marching orders to carry out to leave this place, to be the church. Whatever decision you have to make, if you had to make one this morning, we'd love to talk with you during this next song as we leave this place. Whatever the case, uh, that we would love to encourage you and strengthen you in your walk with Jesus. Be the church that leaves the building to see his name spread all over the world. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for all that you have done for us. All that you continue to do with us, your spirit at work within us to help us to be the, the church that leaves the building. And we come and we worship and we gather and we study your word to be encouraged and empowered that we might go out in our communities, in our workplaces, in our homes to see others come to a knowledge of who you are. Sometimes going out means going into difficult places. People that are hostile to us or, or, or situations that hinder us from sharing your word, but whatever the case, I pray that we would find and follow the example of these apostles here who modeled Christ. Their resolve never wavered. Their message never changed. And in so doing, they decided to be identified with you, Jesus, and not with the world. So God, I pray the same would be said for us. That in resolve through your spirit, not our own power, but yours, and we proclaim your message boldly and proudly, telling others of what Jesus has done for us, our testimony of who Jesus is, so that others might be led to be identified with him as well. We pray this, Jesus, in your powerful name. Amen.